On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On a previous episode, we discussed that profiler Phil Chalmers believes there are 80 to 100 serial killers currently active in the United States. Some of them we think we've caught, but maybe not. Some have never resulted in an arrest. Today, we're going to talk about those unidentified killers and their crimes. This episode is entitled Killers Anonymous. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. Gibson episode, the man himself said that if you were sitting at a bar next to him, you'd have no idea that he was a serial killer. I tend to believe that this is probably true. They were so easy to spot, they wouldn't end up with a very high body count. It also seems to be true that whenever one of these killers is caught, people who knew them generally tend to say, they seemed like such nice people, weird, but not dangerous. Identifying a series is easy for us as armchair detectives, but often connected crimes are not so easy to connect, especially if they take place in various different locations. It's harder for law enforcement to connect those dots. I'd found a list of 10 unidentified serial killers from all over the world on listverse.com. So I started there, picked some cases, did some more digging and research, and came up with this episode. But turns out this is going to be a multi-parter. The first one is mostly the Atlanta Ripper, which I tried to condense and ended up with eight to nine pages of notes. So it might just be that one for the first part, but whatever ends up happening, we won't get anywhere if I don't get a move on. Let's start munching on that biscuit. We're going to get in the way back machine and go back to Atlanta in 1911. This is when the reign of the Atlanta Ripper began. Back in that day, Atlanta, Georgia was called the gateway to the New South. There was a major business boom, and that ended up in Inman Park, Peachtree Street, being the places where the wealthy sought to live. At the time, Atlanta wanted to be seen as racially tolerant, boasting that Morris Brown, Atlanta University, and Atlanta Baptist were some of the best schools in the nation, best black schools in the nation. There were also a lot of new black-owned businesses which solidified their claim to being the new South. The reality was, though, that most of the minority residents in Atlanta were working long hours, doing jobs that didn't pay much, and living in the not-so-desirable neighborhoods of Reynoldstown and Pittsburgh. At that time in history, segregation was still the law, and blacks couldn't walk through white parks or eat in white restaurants or even drink from a white drinking fountain. They also couldn't be buried in white cemeteries. I'm laying out this embarrassing history for a nation because it's important to understand when this killer first started his nasty business of killing, it didn't get much attention in the newspapers. That's because his victims were either black or mixed race. When they did get around to report it, though, the local newspapers dubbed him Jack the Ripper, a la the 1888 killer from London. The American version of that killer later was dubbed the Atlanta Ripper. So when this first started, on seven consecutive Saturday nights between May 20th and July 1st of 1911, the Atlanta Ripper stabbed 
and mutilated several women. All were described as attractive and well-dressed. There was no evidence that any of them had been sexually assaulted, but the mutilations would tend to point to sexually motivated killings. There's no real concrete date for when all of this started or even who the first victim really was, but the first body was found on October 3rd, 1910. Now, I realize I mentioned the consecutive Saturday night thing happening between May and July. These are when consecutive Saturday killings took place, but the first body is found before anyone has made the connection that these are all the same person. But that victim in October of 1910 was 23-year-old Maggie Brook, and her body was found at the intersection of Atlanta and West Point Railroad Track and Hill Street. Maggie's skull had been fractured. On Saturday, January 22nd, 35-year-old Rosa Trice was found. The left side of her skull was almost totally crushed and she'd been stabbed. She'd been stabbed through the jaw and her throat was cut so horrifically that she was nearly decapitated. Her body had then been dragged about 75 yards from Gardner Street, where she lived in Pittsburgh, and then the body was abandoned. A couple of hours after she'd been found, her husband was arrested for the murder, but was released a day later because there was no evidence against him. The Atlanta Constitution did report this murder, and they did not hold back on the grisly details of that crime. So now we're going to go forward to Monday, February 19th of 1911, and an unidentified black female is found in the woods near the West Point Belt Car Line, just a little bit out of the city limits. She was estimated to be about 25 years old, and like the first two, her skull had been crushed. Beer bottles were strewn about her body, and the day she died was estimated to be either Friday or Saturday. May 28th, 1911, this is Sunday morning. The body of Mary Bell Walker was discovered just 25 yards from her own front door. Bell was a cook in a private home, and it was her sister that found her body when Bell hadn't come home the night before. Bell's throat was jaggedly cut. In the early morning hours of June 15th, Addie Watts's body is found in some shrubs close to the Southern Railway. Authorities at the time believe she'd been hit in the head with either a brick or a coupling pin from a train car. And then the killer had stabbed at her skull with that coupling pin. Her throat had been slit, and then her body had been dragged into the bushes. It was Addie's death that finally got the press's attention. Now the press starts to speculate that there's a lone killer preying on young black women. On June 16th, the day after Addie was discovered, the Atlanta Journal ran a headline asking the question, Is there a black butcher at work in the city of Atlanta? was just four paragraphs, but this article tried to link the Atlanta murders to the 1888 Jack the Ripper murders. They did this by putting out the theory that Atlanta has an insane criminal, something on the order of the famed Jack the Ripper. Now there's another competing newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution, but they disagree with this, and they claim that these are all isolated killings and unrelated. Me personally, all of them so far have had crushed skulls and stab wounds and quite a few of them also had their throats slit. Does not take a rocket scientist to see that they are all very similar. Then again, they didn't have rocket scientists in 1911, so who am I to judge? Now it is Saturday, June 24th, and Lizzie Watkins is murdered. She's found around 11 a.m. the next day on Sunday. She is found in some bushes, just like Addie. Lizzie's throat has been cut. After Lizzie is discovered, these crimes finally make it to the front page of the Atlanta Journal. The similarities between the victims and the murders themselves 
make the connection a little too hard to ignore at this point. It's also become kind of obvious that for five Saturdays in a row, young, black, or biracial women have been murdered. This is when the public finally becomes aware of these crimes. They've been covered, but kind of not front page news, and not everybody's paying attention. Now what's on the front page, the public at large is aware of it. What they think is that these women were choked until they passed out, then had their heads crushed, and then the stab wounds were inflicted. And some of them had been mutilated in various areas of their bodies, though due to the quote-unquote delicate nature of these mutilations, like Jack the Ripper, the women's injuries pointed to something sexual in nature, even though they were not raped. Our friends at the Atlanta Constitution are still fighting back the idea of a connection in all of the crimes, although it did report on the most recent one, which was Lizzie. They are of the opinion that her death was a result of cocaine and whiskey. Well, alrighty then. On Saturday, July 1st, Lena Sharp is murdered. Sharp's case is particularly interesting because there was an eyewitness, as well as two different versions of what happened. Here's the first version, according to the Atlanta Constitution. Lena told her 20-year-old daughter, Emma Lou, that she was headed to the market. When she didn't come back, Emma Lou started walking towards the market herself to try to find her mother. This was mostly because Addie Watts, who had just been killed two weeks earlier, was their neighbor, and Emma Lou was frightened when her mother didn't come back. As Emma Lou is walking, she's approached by a tall black man in a black hat who asks her, how do you feel this evening? Emma Lou is not interested in talking to this man, so she keeps on going, but the man says, don't worry, I never hurt girls like you. He follows this statement up by stabbing her in the back and then running off, laughing as he goes. I'm pretty sure that stabbing someone qualifies as hurting them. Anyways, Emma is yelling for help and some neighbors come to her aid. Emma survives the stabbing, but shortly after Emma Lou was attacked, her mother's body is found with her throat cut and a pool of blood around her head. In the second version of this, which was reported in the Atlanta Journal, Lena and Emma Lou were walking together when a black man who'd been hiding jumps out and blocks their path. He then strikes Lena in the head with a brick and she falls to the ground. The man starts slashing at Emma Lou, who runs from the scene screaming, but then passes out due to blood loss. In this version, the man never speaks as, as all of this is happening. Then the assailant goes back and cuts Lena's throat, nearly decapitating her. He then goes back to the passed out Emma Lou who wakes up to find him standing over her with a bloody knife. Supposedly, then, the sound of approaching footsteps scare the man off. No matter which version is the more accurate, Lena was indeed killed and nearly decapitated, and Emma Lou was stabbed. In fact, the journal reported that she probably wasn't going to survive her stab wounds, but in the end, she did. And most importantly, Emma Lou got a good look at the man who killed her mother. The detectives working the case realized that the man that had assaulted Emma Lou and her mother was the same one that killed their neighbor Addie and probably all of the other victims. The Atlanta Constitution finally had to swallow their pride and announce that the Jack the Ripper theory now had some meat on its bones. The city itself now knows they have a killer in their midst, and as the Atlanta Journal puts in the headline, will Jack the Ripper claim eighth victim this Saturday? The whole town is waiting to find out. There isn't a killing, but there was most likely a botched one. 
On Saturday, the Ripper's favorite day to kill, it seems, 22-year-old Mary Yeldell left the home of her employers, Mr. and Mrs. Salser. As she passed by an alley, she heard a whistle. She stopped, and a large black man, tall and well-built, was moving towards her. She would later say that he was approaching with a cat-like tread. Well, she wasn't having any of this, so she screamed and ran back to the Salser house. Mr. Salser grabs his revolver and runs out to the alley, and amazingly, the man is still there. Mr. Salser orders him to put his hands up or he'll shoot. Instead of cooperating, the man runs down an alley. Mr. Salser does call for the police, but when they go to the alley, they don't find anything. The incident with Mary is what seems to have broken the Saturday night streak, or at least temporarily, but that doesn't mean that the Ripper is done yet. Nope. Henry Hugh Proctor. He is the pastor of the First Congregational Church in Atlanta. He gathers together black community leaders. He is asking that all of the black residents of Atlanta use their resources to find this killer. He asks the black community to cooperate with the police. At the same time, people in the community start asking the police force to hire black detectives to help hunt this killer. Because of segregation, Reverend Proctor and other community members thought that the residents of their communities would cooperate more easily with black detectives, and those same detectives could move about in these neighborhoods with more ease. On Tuesday morning, July 11th, a worker named Will Brogwin found some loose dirt on his normal walk to work. He followed the disturbed soil to a blood trail, and that to a place near the Orme Street sewer. There he discovered the body of Sadie Holly in a small gully. Sadie's skull was fractured by a large stone. Then it appears that she was dragged about 15 feet before her throat was cut from ear to ear, and she was also nearly decapitated. Her shoes had been cut from her feet, and a comb that had been in her hair was sitting next to a blood-covered rock that they assume had been used to fracture her skull. In the dirt, near her body, were footprints showing which way the killer left the scene. About a hundred onlookers were at the crime scene within about 20 minutes of Sadie's body being found. By the time the coroner got there, there were about 500 people. This is not good for preserving crime scenes. I don't need to tell you. Sadie Holly became the first murder victim of the Atlanta Ripper who made the front page of the previously skeptical Atlanta Constitution. Now some suspects are going to be taken into custody. 27-year-old Henry Huff was arrested on July 11th, less than a day after Sadie's body has been found. Supposedly, Huff was the last person seen with her. There was dirt on his pants up to the knees and what appeared to be a blood stain. He also had scratches on his arms, and a cabbie named Will Williams reported that Sadie and Henry had been arguing in his cab and that he had dropped them off near where her body was found. Henry wasn't the only one, though. Shortly after nabbing Henry, police get their hands on 35-year-old Todd Henderson at a nearby saloon. They picked Todd up because some man claimed he'd seen Todd with Sadie in a drugstore on the night of her murder and that the drugstore was pretty close to the spot where she was murdered. Emma Lou Sharp, who escaped the Ripper but whose mother had not, was brought to the station. She was asked to listen to Henderson's voice. 
according to the Atlanta Constitution, she shrank back when she heard his voice. Emma Lou's determination that that was the voice of the man that had attacked her and her mother wasn't considered a slam dunk by any means, but it was something. Henderson himself was quoted as saying that if he were the ripper, he'd have started with his wife because she gave him lots of trouble. It also wasn't just Emma Lou's identification of his voice that put the spotlight on Henderson. Police had questioned him, and he claimed he hadn't owned a razor or pocket knife for about a year. But the police had found out that morning that not long after Sadie's murder, Todd Henderson had dropped off a razor at the barber to be sharpened. The case against both men, Huff and Henderson, was only circumstantial, but the police decided to hand both over to the prosecutor. The police figured a grand jury would be able to figure out which one of them to indict for the murder of Sadie Holly. On August 8, 1911, the grand jury picked Henry Huff to indict for the murder of Sadie Holly. And weirdly, a new suspect named John Daniel Huff, who has no relationship to Henry Huff, is indicted in a related case. But the jury won't say which case he's indicted for. So now we have two men indicted. Should be the end of it, right? Wrong. On Thursday, August 31st, six weeks after Sadie was murdered, the body of 20-year-old Mary Ann Duncan was found in an area west of Atlanta. Her body was found between railroad tracks, and like the other victims, the wound to her throat was ear to ear. And her shoes had been removed, just like Sadie. Now we have a new killing, and the media and the police have to be thinking they'd not arrested the right suspects or the real ripper. On Sunday, October 22nd, Eva Florence's body is found in a field. She'd been killed on Saturday. Sound familiar? And she'd been beaten about the head and stabbed in the neck. Not slashed like the others. It's also reported that a firearm had been discharged shortly before or after Eva was murdered. On Friday, November 10th, Minnie Wise was found dead in an alley. She'd been bludgeoned with a rock and then dragged into a field where her throat was then cut. Her lifeless body had then been dragged another 20 feet to where she was discovered. Her right index finger had been cut off at the middle joint and her shoes were missing. Minnie was also found close to where other victims had been murdered. I am pretty much thinking they don't have the right dudes in prison. What say you? Let's go forward 11 days to the 21st of November, and a middle-aged woman named Mary Putnam becomes the next victim. Her body is found around 7 a.m. in a ditch, with some dirt loosely thrown on top of her. Her throat is cut, her chest is mutilated, and her heart is found next to her. An autopsy will reveal a broken skull. There are prints around Mary's body, so the police bring in a bloodhound. The dog is able to track it about 200 yards, then loses the scent. It's said that over 1,000 people viewed Mary's body at the undertaker. A coroner's inquest into this crime found that a firearm had been discharged around midnight when Mary had been killed. After Mary Putnam was killed, a detective complained to a reporter from the Constitution that the case was never going to be solved if... They didn't get some help from the black community. He felt they knew who was committing the murders, but were afraid to talk. At Big Bethel Church, the pastors were warning their female parishioners about going out at night. And at the same time, they took up a collection 
and ended up with $1,200 as reward for catching the Ripper. Remember Henry Duff, the guy who the grand jury indicted for Sadie Holly's murder? Well, he's found not guilty. That's probably a good thing. But here's something kind of funny that happened during his trial. Sheriff Plenty Minor made the suggestion at that trial that all of the killings were not committed by a man, but by jealous black women. Needless to say, this was ridiculed by the police and the detectives involved. Now it is January 19, 1912, and Pearl Williams's body is found in a vacant lot a block from her home. Her throat has been slashed. She is also a cook, as were many of the others, in a private home. In March of 1912, the Constitution reports that a grand jury has decided that the Atlanta Ripper is a myth. How then did all of these women end up dead? The grand jury's conclusion is that each murder has been committed by a different man. And why are all of these men killing all of these women? Because of jealousy brought on by immoral conduct. And how, we might ask, did they come to this conclusion? Who knows? They never explain the reason. Sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. I'm sure it does to you as well. Monday, April 8th, 1912, 18-year-old Mary Cates is found in an alley with her throat cut and her body mutilated. Her clothes are in a nice little pile beside her body. The leader, which is a Lexington, Kentucky newspaper, reported that the mutilation on Mary was done with a surgical instrument and implied the killer had some kind of anatomical knowledge. On Monday, April 15th, the body of an unidentified black female is found near the Chattahoochee River. She's discovered by the chief engineer of the brick company that was nearby. She was underneath the Southern Railway Bridge. Two other men helped the chief engineer to bring the body back to the Fulton County side of the river. I'm thinking maybe moving a body is not good for um, evidence, but this is what they did. Her throat had been slashed, and around her neck was a key on a string. They estimated this female was about 15 years old. Also, in that same month, an unidentified 19-year-old black woman was found in some bushes with stab wounds to her throat. On Saturday, May 11th, around 6 a.m., the body of another unidentified black female was found behind some shrubs at the corner of Atlanta Avenue and Fraser Street. She had been stabbed in the throat at least two times, with one of those wounds going through her jugular vein. She'd been dragged to the final location after death. When she was found, it was estimated she'd only been dead for about six hours. In August of 1912, Henry Brown, a.k.a. Lawton Brown, was arrested for the slaying of Eva Florence back in October of 1911. Brown's wife had told police that her husband had come home on a couple of Saturdays with blood on his clothes. These Saturdays coincided with killings. While being questioned, Brown supposedly gave the police details of other crimes. In October, when he went on trial, it came out, thanks to a man named John Rutherford, that police had chained Brown's arms and legs to a chair and struck him repeatedly in the head until he confessed to the crimes. On the stand, Brown testified that he was suffering from hallucinations. My guess would be that repeated beatings to the head will do that. The jury acquitted him because they felt he would have confessed to anything under those circumstances. On February 11th, a young black girl of no more than 20 years old was found at Farron Christian Street. She had cuts to the face 
and a terrible slash wound to her throat. Her head and chest were also bruised. An inquest determined that her killer had stabbed at her head until the knife broke. Based on footprints around the body, they determined that her killer had returned later and flipped her over like he was trying to verify that she was really dead. In March of 1913, Laura Smith's body was found with her throat cut. She was young, of mixed heritage, and worked as a servant, just like the others. A year later, in March of 1914, some firefighters found notes stuck to fireboxes all over the city. These notes threatened to cut the throats of all black women who were on the streets after certain hours of the night. The newspapers at the time attributed these notes to the Atlanta Ripper. Now we're going to jump forward three years to June 4th of 1917. Two boys that are out picking blackberries one morning make an unfortunate find. Instead of more berries, they find the partially hidden body of an unidentified black woman near some train tracks not far from Stewart Street. Her skull had been crushed and beaten with something heavy and sharp. Sadly, those were not the only children to find a potential victim of the Ripper. Some school children found the body of another unidentified black female near the Clark University campus on the afternoon of Monday, October 1st, 1917. The body was in a mud puddle and had a crushed head along with other obvious signs of violence to her body. She was estimated to be between 30 and 35. March 10th of 1918, an unidentified woman is found at the top of a wooded hill. She's been dead for about a day when she's found. She had a stab wound to the neck and her body was heavily covered in blood. And there was a small, half-opened pen knife near her body. On March 16th, a year later in 1919, Queen Esther Jackson was attacked and stabbed several times. She did not die immediately, though. She told police she was in her yard trying to get a drink of water from a hydrant when a black man came out of the dark and stabbed her. Esther unfortunately died from her injuries three days later on March 19th. Now we have a quiet period. It's five years before another death, even similar to the others, is found. And it's more location than method. May of 1924, an unidentified 24-year-old woman is found on the Southern Railroad tracks between Peyton Station and Chattahoochee Station. She did not have the typical slash or stabbed throat. She did have a knife wound to the temple, and there was evidence at the scene that showed there had been a scuffle before she was killed. Six months later in September, the badly decomposed body of a teenage girl was found face down in a vacant lot near the Southern Railroad. She had an ear-to-ear slash wound to her throat. The Atlanta Constitution had reported three other black women being found with their throat slashed in the two weeks prior. In each instance, the shoes and the stockings had been removed. On Monday, September 24th, an unidentified woman was found. They estimated she was about 30, and she had a bullet wound to the head, her throat was cut, and there were slash wounds to her wrist and back. She had been dead for about a day when she was found. There were obviously a lot of murders between 1910 and 1924. Not all of them can be concretely laid at the doorstep of the Atlanta Ripper. Some that were credited to that killer were probably not his. One of those was Lucinda McNeil, who had been murdered with her throat cut to near decapitation. Turned out, she was murdered by her husband, Charles. 
Even though this case is pretty clear-cut, she's sometimes included as one of the Ripper's possible victims. Minnie Wise was murdered in November of 1911. Her husband was known to be super jealous because Minnie was a beautiful woman and he wasn't too crazy about the attention she got. The police are guessing that he committed the murder and did it in a way so that the Ripper would take the blame for his kill. Pearl Williams had her throat slashed on January 19th of 1912 and her body was found the next day in the middle of a vacant lot. She was on her way home and was murdered a block from her house. She had reportedly been arguing with a black man in the days leading up to her murder. This man was overheard telling her that since she had promised to marry him, if she didn't, she would not be marrying anyone else. A man named Frank Harvey was arrested the day after her murder, but it's not clear whether or not he was the same man she'd been arguing with. He had a large knife on him, and there were bloodstains on his shirt. The next day, a 17-year-old named Edgar Evans was picked up as another suspect. But there is no other info about Pearl's murder or about the arrest of either Harvey or Evans. Just as a side note, there were some other killings that were attributed to the Ripper that happened outside of Atlanta. These included two men and a woman. Let's talk about the coroner. This wasn't made public at the time, but Paul Dunhue was legally blind. He'd graduated Atlanta Law School in 1911, but he never got a formal degree in medicine. Most coroners make their findings based on what they see, but since Paul couldn't do that, he relied on verbal and written descriptions provided by others, whose personal views could have skewed what they relayed to him. They might have also, having not been trained, understood the evidence or what they were looking at. To make matters worse, Dunhue made the statement that he was in no doubt that all of the killings were the work of a single killer. This, as you can imagine, might have steered police into a single line of inquiry and into seeing connections in the killings that were false. To muddy the water further, there was a lot of anger over the fact that members of the black community that had requested black detectives work the case did not get their wish. They were also upset that only black men were arrested and questioned. The sentiment was that a white man could have also committed the murders. I don't disagree with that, but if we take a step back and take a look at the facts as we see them and taking into consideration segregation and the atmosphere at the time, it really isn't very likely it was a white man committing these crimes. And it probably wasn't just one man. First off, Emma Lou said it was a black man that killed her mother and stabbed her. It also wouldn't have been easy for a white man to just wander about these neighborhoods without arousing suspicion. And especially after the killings became public knowledge, the people in these neighborhoods would have been very leery of a Caucasian man just strolling about. The location of the bodies also gives us some other information to nibble on. The bodies were almost always found near a railroad track, on or near a building or location that had something to do with the railroad. Maybe the Ripper worked for the railroad and kind of hunted in familiar territory. Another possibility is that he wasn't even from Atlanta. Maybe his job was with the railroad and that just brought him in and out of Atlanta on a regular schedule. And when the murders all started, they happened on Saturdays. Then it became early in the week. This might have been because of a schedule change with his railroad job. Who knows? Whatever the case, the Atlanta Ripper 
did have some things in common with Jack the Ripper, and it was pretty obvious. That was a hatred for women. He might have just targeted black women because they were easier for him to approach. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these women were biracial, which might have also triggered him. At the time of the crimes, the police were often showing up to these sites where the bodies were found after dozens of people had tramped through the crime scene. That would make finding evidence a lot harder. Even though the police patrols were increased after the Ripper started making himself known, it didn't seem to slow the Ripper down. He could just move around wherever he wanted with no obvious pattern. And it's kind of hard to set up patrols if you don't know where he is going to strike next. And when they did make an arrest, they were accused of being racist because they were only arresting black men. They got a lot of guff from the newspapers and even the mayor of the time because they weren't able to handle the situation. Instead of people directing their anger at this brutal killer, they were aiming it at the police. To this very day, the Atlanta Ripper cases remain unsolved. On Instagram, I'll post a few pictures. One of them is of Mary Bell Walker, one of the Ripper's victims. Let's try to squeeze one more case in. I'll make this one faster. Dr. No, or the case of the Ohio prostitute killer. Before you at me, there are many people convinced this has not been solved, so I'm including it. 23-year-old Shirley Dean Taylor's body was found behind a traffic barrier in Medina County, Ohio. Shirley was known as a working girl. She'd been beaten to death and all of her jewelry and most of her clothes had been removed. There were similar killings in Ohio that stretched out over a decade. In February of 1987, 27-year-old Anna Marie Patterson was found dead along Interstate 71 near Cincinnati. An investigative reporter by the name of Michael Behrens, who first pointed out the killings, with Patterson being the sixth one, he pointed out that this kind of fit a pattern. Patterson had been beaten, and the autopsy also revealed that her body had been refrigerated for some period of time. This made the possibility of a killer that was either a cannibal or a necrophile. Patterson had been looking for customers at a truck stop in Austintown, just south of Cleveland. A witness told Barons and the police that Patterson's last call came from a truck driver with the CB handle of Dr. No. Another possible victim of Dr. No was Patricia Corley, who was found beaten to death near Interstate 70 in April of 1992. Initially, she was just listed as Jane Doe. It took 24 years before DNA would uncover her true identity in 2016. When she was murdered, Patricia was a 29-year-old mother with a baby boy. Like the other suspected victims of Dr. No, she'd been beaten to death with a blunt instrument, and her connection to a truck stop was only that she was found near one. Another possible victim was Marcia King. She was 21 and originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. She was found on April 24, 1981. She was found on Greenlee Road near Troy, Ohio. At the time of her death, she was wearing a fairly unique buckskin jacket. She'd been beaten to death with a blunt instrument and had only been dead for a few hours when she was found. She was not officially identified until 2018, but regardless, at the time of her murder, the investigative journalist Michael Behrens believes that Marsha was actually Dr. No's first victim. In May of 2017, a former investigator for Warren County, Ohio, Mark Duvalius, said that Dr. No was probably a Middle Eastern man with long, dark hair and was between the ages of 25 and 40 
at the time of the Anna Marie Patterson killing in 1987. In 2019, just last year, 49-year-old Samuel Legg III was indicted in Arizona on three counts of aggravated murder and one count of murder. All of his crimes took place in Ohio. There is DNA evidence that leads to the assumption that Legg is responsible for the murder of Patricia Corley, as well as some other murders that took place in northeastern Ohio. An interesting fact, too, is that Legg worked for many years as a long-haul truck driver. However, despite all of that, not everyone is convinced that Legg is Dr. No, and even more people believe he was not the one that killed Marsha King. So we are left to wonder, did they really catch Dr. No, or is he still out there? Your guess is as good as mine. That ought to do it for this episode. I'm so excited because on Monday, my new microphone is coming, and hopefully the sound will be better from now on. If not, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum. Anyway, check out my Instagram to see a few pictures from the Atlanta Ripper case. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at CrimeBiscuit, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. If you come across a crime scene, don't do the foxtrot across it while you wait for the police. It's just not polite. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. Mm-hmm.